This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, both past and present. Welcome to Sunburnt Screens, a celebration of Australian cinema. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos, and I'll be your host and also your guide on this odyssey through the landscape of our most treasured films and celebrated filmmakers. And hopefully, I'll help you discover some rare films that you will cherish for the rest of your life, like I do. Sunburn Screens is a passion project brought to you by myself and the legends at Umbrella Entertainment. For years, I have admired their unmatched devotion to Australian cinema. Their library of classics is vast as heck and they've generously opened it up to me. And now to you as well. Many of the classic oddities we'll be charting through on this journey are available to you to watch on their free streaming service, Broly. And honestly, they have earned their place in the beautiful multiplex in the sky for this most honourable service to cinema. Our first journey is a two-part adventure into the darkness, Australian nightmares, modern horror cinema. We're going to be looking at something I find very interesting and extremely exciting. I think that for the last decade, we've been in the midst of a very fresh, very powerful new wave of Australian horror cinema. There are so many important films being made in Australia or made by Australian filmmakers that are deeply in those feelings of terror, horror and discomfort, grappling with really big topics that are both personal and deep. But a new wave doesn't just crash out of nowhere. In this first part, we'll be looking at those first few films that I believe are the key precursors to this new wave of horror. We're going to be joined by the Spearig brothers who have made so many great modern classics in this genre, including Undead, Daybreakers, and the twisted sci-fi thriller Predestination. We'll also be joined by Sean Byrne, the director of one of my personal favorite freakouts, The Loved Ones, and Enzo Tedeschi, the co-writer of the literal underground treasure, the found footage film, The Tunnel. But to contextualize all of that, I'm going to be joined by one of the great horror minds, the great academics of this very fiendish style of cinema, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Alex has written nine books on horror and genre cinema, including 1,000 Women in Horror, The Giallo Canvas, and Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study. Truly, there's no one more perfect to be with me here discussing these films. To begin our discussion and exploration into Australian horror cinema, I thought it would be beneficial to have a little bit of context. What is it that we think identifies an Australian horror film? What are the themes that lurk beneath them? The return of the repressed, when you're talking about Australian horror in particular, is so exciting and so essential. Because it's like, what if this dark history that we've buried, that we're kind of uncomfortable with en masse, what if it bubbles up in ways that we can't control and we can't deal with? What if the narrative is being controlled by something that's out of our control? And all Australian horror, I think engages with this idea of repressed returned histories in really fundamental ways and it might not be dealing explicitly with colonialism but there's always this kind of discomfort what if the past comes back to haunt us i think some of your work that really fascinates me most recently has been in that idea of grappling with colonialism still through horror and kind of redefining a lot of these Australian horror films or Australian genre films like The Last Wave or Celia, as you mentioned before, as this kind of more modern take on folk horror? Yeah, I mean, Australian folk horror is a really dense, interesting space. And I think a lot of films that have fallen in that category have generally been written out of Australian film history. So films like Celia by Ann Turner from 1989, a wonderful film called Alison's Birthday, uh, a great film from the 80s called The Dreaming. There was actually a lot of, well, not a lot, but there were quite a few Australian horror films that were released in 1988, the year of the bicentenary, that are dealing with the idea of these repressed histories, these sort of these things that we're trying to push down and ignore and forget about that sort of bubble up from underneath and that in ways that we can't control them. And in The Dreaming, it's explicitly about Indigenous culture, First Nations culture. And that's a fascinating film because it draws a direct parallel between kind of colonialism as a, as a force and violence against women. So, you know, it's very much unites the kind of kind of cultural logic that wants to sort of support colonialism is also the kind of cultural logic that is, it seeks to repress women as well. And that's a fascinating film that is deeply underrated, deeply underrated. You know, if it wasn't for somebody like Kayla Janice and her incredible work on folk horror 
uh, you know, she's a Canadian filmmaker, a Canadian scholar. She's the one who's really been championing these films. You know, it's that, that classic thing where we need somebody from overseas to tell us actually these films are interesting. You know, we not necessarily, you know, we haven't really picked up something like The Dreaming and really run with it here as deep as much as we have other kinds of films. That's such a common theme here in Australian entertainment. We need to be recognised overseas before we even get celebrated here. That thought immediately calls to mind sibling filmmakers and a pair of our biggest genre cinema exports, Michael and Peter Spearig. I have to know, does mum watch the movies? She does. She has. She's no, watched she all of them. Um, I don't think she watched Jigsaw from <laughs> She didn't see that one. <laughs> Too far, perhaps. Too much. But mum, you can skip this one. It's okay. Michael and Peter Spierig are best known for Predestination, the sci-fi horror film remembered for Sarah Snook's breakout performance. I absolutely love that film. They also have made the modern nightmare of vampiric speculative fiction Daybreakers, and they have even made a freaking Saw film, Jigsaw. But it all starts for the Spierig brothers with a nasty little piece of inventive backyard horror comedy, Undead, in 2003. How did they know where we were? They can smell us. They want to feed off us. And what about the meteorites falling from the sky? It's probably just the sunlight coming through the clouds. That was no sunlight. I have like this very vivid memory of being like a young kid who just started having like this burgeoning love of film. And I kept seeing the posters for Undead everywhere. Like, I feel like it really took over my neighborhood, those posters. And kind of getting this vibe of, like, seeing how cool this looked. And it was kind of probably my first instincts of there being this different side of film. This this side of film that was more independent, more, like, gung-ho. And kind of like that, that roughness, that excitement about it. From the outside, that's what it felt like. But what did it feel like for you guys kicking off your career with Undead? Well, look, Undead, Undead's quite a long time ago now. I mean, the, the, film is, the film is 20 years old now, which is hard to believe. It is and hard I, to believe. Yeah. And that, that was a different time in cinema. I mean, we, we were sort of coming into the tail end of the, I guess we call it the end of analog, right? Like it was the, we shot that film on 16 millimeter, super 16 millimeter, which nobody does anymore. And that was something, because we grew up with George Romero and Sam Raimi and all those guys, and they shot all their first films on on 16 mil. So we figured that's what we're going to do. And at that time, that was really the best format we could shoot on to sort of future-proof it. Making Undead back then, we we wanted to do it because there was no real horror movies in Australia being made at that point. You know, the um that wave that happened, that that exploitation wave that happened in the 80s, had kind of finished. And there wasn't a lot of genre stuff around in Australia anymore. And the funding bodies weren't really supporting genre. I, they sort of still don't, but they're a little better than they were back then. And we sort of knew that we weren't going to get giant stars for this movie. So we kind of felt like horror is great because you don't need big stars. You, you kind of the genre itself is the star and there's a sort of built in fan base for the genre. So we figured we love the genre. We know the genre. Let's make a zombie movie. And when we made that film, I, I don't think there was anybody or maybe one or two people that had ever worked on a feature film before. So it was kind of a big roll of the dice and, and sort of we took a lot of risks on that one. But, but we figured the only way no one was going to give us any funding, nobody was going to give us sort of a jump start to our careers. So we just figured let's let's dive into the deep end and, and make it ourselves. And thankfully, it's it still lives on. <laughs> I mean, we just re-released it again after 20 years and it, and it sold out and all of that sort of stuff. So it's it's fascinating to see the life that silly movie still has. Yeah, I mean, we we, uh, we didn't expect it to really go anywhere. We weren't sure that anyone was going to see it outside of our friends and family and the people that worked on it. So it was very bizarre when it got released in 50-something countries and was dubbed into multiple languages and all that kind of stuff. And it, was, it was pretty crazy. Peter, maybe we could start with you for this question. There's like this great history of sibling directors in the history of film. What is your style like working with together? What's like a typical day on set like? Uh, Michael directs and I cry. That's usually how it works. <laughs> I mean, we, it's, it's really kind of one of those 50-50 things. And it's because we work on the script together, we storyboard the movie together, we pre-plan it all together. It's, it's very much just executing a plan. So it's, you know, there's some things that happen on set that is spontaneous and you change things because 
an actor might do something and go, well, we should roll with that because that's better than what we thought or, or whatever it might be. The DP might have some ideas or whatever. But generally we're executing a plan. So Michael and I are just on the same page, just trying to make the day and, and get it done. And so Michael might direct the actors for one bit. I might direct it for another. We, we do it together sometimes. It's That isn't so much of a pre-planned thing where Michael has to talk to the actors and I'll talk to the camera department. It's We just cross over and do whatever feels right at the time. But it, it's never like we're trying to figure it out on set. Things might change, but we're not sort of trying to figure out how, how do we do this scene. We already know what we want to try and get. It's just sometimes you don't have the time to get everything, so you have to sort of rejig it a bit to, to get the day. Michael, one thing you said earlier really hit me as a really great insight is making films on a low budget, you don't always have access to the stars but the genre can be the star. And I think that's certainly true with a lot of the work that you've been making, especially your earlier work, like the creatures do feel like the stars. I'd love to hear your thoughts on creature features and how you even kind of like reinvent creatures for the screen. <laughs> creature features. I mean, look, I, I love creature features. I probably love, it's probably my favorite horror genre. I mean, I, I love a good slasher as well, but the creature feature is always fascinating. I mean, we've been working with the same makeup effects artists for since we're doing sh uh, short films, Steve Boyle. And Steve Boyle is one of the best in the world. So whenever we come up with an idea for a creature or a character that involves a lot of makeup effects, we always consult him first and we start playing around with ideas and designs and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it always starts with the intention of the, of the, the character, like what the core of the vampire or the zombie or, or even like when we did Predestination, it was an intersex character where we did male to female transitions and all of that sort of stuff. It comes down to the character and what can we do to, to sell a convincing makeup and how can the actor assist us in that? That's always super critical is like when we cast the right actor, it's like, what are you doing to bring this to life? How are you working on your posture, your performance, your, your looks, your, how are you using every part of your body to sell this makeup? We're big, we love practical makeup effects. So we want to do as much for real as we possibly can. And if you need to do digital, the best version of it is to try to do a combo of both. So you've got real things there to match to, which is always great. I love makeup effects. And I think that it's it's kind of a little bit of a lost art lately. I know that people still do it a lot, but it seems like a lot of the younger filmmakers are straight into the CG option, which ends up being quite boring for me, I think. I'm always, I always like to see stuff on set and I like the interactive quality of something that's spontaneous and might not fully work how you hope and you have to adapt a little bit it becomes very real so <laughs> i'm always a big believer in makeup it does take a long time i know that the um from memory peter do you remember the subside of character the character in the kitchen in daybreakers that was a 10 hour makeup application they started the night before it was it was pretty yeah, long it was head to night toe before they started stuff. that yeah. the makeup on that actor. It so it's it's that type of commitment and and it's and, you know, the actors love it and then they hate it. So, <laughs> yeah, it ends up being a bit of a double-edged sword. My favourite film that you guys have made is Predestination. I think it is just, one. for me, was one of the great discoveries was seeing that film and just, like, being completely wrapped up in it and feeling so fresh. I think one of the reasons it feels so fresh is... I think it is so rare to have a, an Australian science fiction film. I feel like I don't even know if I could count them, let alone count them on one hand. Did that feel risky trying to go into that genre and get that kind of genre film made here? Well, we had made, well, after we made Daybreakers, Peter and I became good friends with Ethan Hawke. And, and that was a huge, that, that certainly helped finance Predestination. In fact, it was the catalyst that got it going. You know, like we... We had um, adapted the Heinlein short story, All You Zombies, and we loved it. Peter actually handed it to me, and he's like, this this is amazing. It's weird. I don't know if anybody's going to get it, but I, I bet you Ethan will like it, because Ethan likes this esoteric out there type of stuff. And so we sent it to him, and he loved it, and he said yes straight away. Um, and he originally wanted to play all the parts. <laughs> and we're like, we don't have the technology can't catch up. We can't turn you into a 17-year-old girl. I mean, maybe we could now, um, but we, we couldn't you know, whatever it was, eight years ago, whenever we shot that movie. Um, and so I, the joy of that movie was because we kept it low budget enough um, and Ethan satisfied the financiers as far as being able to pre-sell and, and get the money we needed to make it. And it afforded us the opportunity to really look at the best actor or actress for the other part. And we weren't quite sure which way to go with that. And we auditioned everybody 
in Australia, every young actor, actress in Australia. And Sarah, was, Sarah Snook was, there was a lot of incredible actresses and Sarah Snook was the standout. And um, I think that's probably the best, one of the best decisions we've ever made as filmmakers is casting her. And it was a very risky thing. And there was a lot of notes from Sony as we made the film, but they were largely just makeup notes and making sure that the transition was was working. But once we once we saw that that was working, they basically left us alone to make the movie. And I think maybe the movie was a little bit ahead of its time because it seems like these the, this subject is quite topical these days. Maybe it was five years too early or something like that. Um, because I think when it came out. I don't think Sony really knew what to do with it. <laughs> they liked it. They, they were big fans of it. We had some big, we had some champions there at Sony who really loved the movie. But I don't think they had, they knew what they had and and how to market a film like that. And maybe it's a different landscape today. And maybe it's a little easier to market a film like that. But it was nuts. Um, <laughs> and it was uh, it's certainly for us again that that thing about if you keep it low budget enough and you can this is a trick you got to get an actor, but then you can have a bit of creative freedom. And that's probably the freest Peter and I have ever been on a shoot. Wouldn't you say, Peter, that's the freest we've been? Yeah, I mean, that was the movie that that really we got to make it the way we wanted to make it. We had enough money to do it sort of the way we wanted to do it. I mean, we, you never have enough money, but if we could we could do it. And uh, we had an actor that, that we really liked, that we had a really good relationship with. And we got we just got left alone to do our thing, which was rare. And we cut the movie, and we were really happy with it. We made a couple tweaks after a test screening, and that's the thing with the test screening. Michael and I both knew going in, there's people that are going to absolutely love this, and there's people that are absolutely going to hate it. And this is the problem: is we know what we're going to get at the end of it. Thankfully, it was largely positive. But we had a focus group at the end of the test screening, where they put 30 people basically in a small little group and they asked, what did you think of the film? And one person said, totally original and interesting. And the next person said, completely unoriginal and boring. And these were two people next to each other. And it's like, well, what the hell do I do with that? I don't, I don't know what I can do with that. And um, so all that stuff happened. And, you know, it became one of those things where Sony just couldn't quite figure it out, <laughs> which is a shame because we were, we were convinced we had something pretty unique. It lives on though. Like, like again, this is the weird thing about filmmaking is there's the release of a film and some films do huge business when they first come out great marketing campaigns but then after it it's a big hit nobody remembers it and then a lot of the movies that i truly deeply love my favorite movies were failures when they came out i mean if you look at just the thing in blade runner that same year right two of the greatest movies ever made the thing might be one of the greatest horror movies ever made and that was a complete disaster when it came out and you can't assume that big works when it comes out that it's the test of time and you can't ever assume that something that is a, a little smaller and does modestly well won't have a long life later and won't be rediscovered later particularly genre and that's the joy of horror and genre in general is it's such a deeply rooted passionate fan base that they will keep digging up those movies and i think the joy of horror these days is because it's become so sanitized with the exception of a few really talented filmmakers out there because it's become so sanitized and, and because the culture has changed so much, people really dig back into those films of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, looking for something that, that was of its time, but that, that has some sort of lasting appeal. Like the video nasties of the 80s, we don't see much of those anymore. Even the slashes don't have nudity in them anymore. And you're like, what happened? You know, like when did, when did the whole genre become so sanitized i think we're going to have some vicious films coming out in the next five years because i think there's a whole group of filmmakers out there that are like nah we're going back to the grindhouse days now and that's going to be exciting to see again i know a lot of filmmakers that are, that are fed up with sanitized filmmaking and want to get down and dirty again and that's great one thing i really wanted to speak to you guys about is the idea of like international actors coming to australia you know you've worked with some of the greats like ethan Hawke, willem dafoe helen mirren are those the kind of casting options that help get those things, finances over the line for you? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it changes everything very quickly. And that's the thing is, you know, there's sort of a cart before the horse scenario because you need to have the money to get the actor, but you need the actor to get the money. And it's, it's a tricky thing. And sometimes it's relationships help. Sometimes it might be a previous project that you've done that gets an actor excited. Uh, it can be a number of ways to get the actors. Sometimes you can send them a script and money, they'll just say... Money, <laughs> money. yes, of course, money. But, but sometimes even that's not enough, you know, the, especially when actors are getting paid tremendous amounts of money to go 
spend nine months on a Netflix show or something like that. It's you, you got to entice them in many different ways. And once you get an actor of Helen Stature or Willem or Ethan or any of these types of people, you, you end up greenlit pretty quickly. And then the movie can go ahead. And what also happens is when you get somebody like that, it brings other very talented people along as well because it just sets a standard for the project. So you start to ask more people that you, you think aren't going to you know, be in the possible realm of being in the project and, and they say yes. And that's when it gets super exciting. And we've been fortunate a couple of times to, to have that experience. And it just changes the whole project when you get a, a name and somebody who's classified as a real sort of talented actor as well on top of that. I mean, sometimes the problem also too is like actors, at least quote unquote, serious actors, don't like doing genre pictures, right? They, they see it as lowbrow or they see it as the genres, again, the genres, the star, they're not the star. Or there, there is that element, there is that sort of bias that may happen sometimes with, with actors. I think it's changed a bit now that there's the more sophisticated horror films, the more psychological horror films, those opportunities for real performances. But it generally still is a bit of a dirty genre and it can be tricky to get actors. And it's also a matter of like, you want to get a big enough star so you can sell your film to all the foreign territories so you can raise enough funds to make your movie. But you also don't want to have a gigantic star that you're obligated to that dreaded, and we suffered it on Winchester, that dreaded PG rating or that, that rating that kind of kills you a little bit. And, and you kind of want to find that balance of, a, of an actor that will get you your financing but won't obligate you to a certain rating or a certain audience that forces your hand a little bit as well so it's, it's a tricky thing it's a tricky thing and it is hard to define who's a star these days <laughs> it, it's really tricky to know like the way we would love to do is we would try to find a sarah snook every time that's what we do more than anything more than going out to big movie stars and, and you know we love helen mirren and we love willem and ethan and sam neil we love these people but i would much rather have the opportunity to find another Sarah Snook or, or whomever in a genre picture and give them opportunities. And there's so many young actors out there begging for the opportunity to do it. It's just the financiers that say, well, talk to us again in five years when they're a star. And you're like, well, we can make them a star. Well, that's not good enough. They already need to be a star. So how did they get the opportunity to be a star? If you won't give it's I think that's actually one thing that as a fan, I really love about your movies is that you do find that balance of, you know, casting these major actors that feel like actors that love filmmakers but also feel like those friends of genre like Helen Mirren like Ethan Hawke like Willem Dafoe like Sam Neill they feel like they're friends of genre cinema and I feel like you always find that balance of movies that feel Australian for Australians but kind of reach beyond the boundaries of our country as well. I think, to me, that's as a fan, that's something. Well, I really we would love, love to do work. more pure Aussie stuff too. I mean, we're trying to do more pure Aussie stuff as well. And it seems like there used to be this big thing. I know when we first released Undead, I remember them saying, "Peter, I don't know if you remember this." They said, "We love the film, but is there any chance we can redub it?" I'm like, "What are you talking about? From English to English?" I'm like, uh huh. And like, because the, the Aussie accents, they couldn't understand a word the cop was saying. They now, what they, well, Michael, what they meant is dub it from English to American. Exactly. And that's what that meant. Yes. <laughs> I want to make more Aussie Aussie movies. <laughs> and it is it like the Australian landscape still hasn't been explored enough, certainly not lately, because it's it's such a harsh environment and it lends itself so well to genre. It's such a brutal landscape in many ways. And, and you can certainly do some pretty awesome survival movies and that sort of thing out in the Australian outback. We need more of that stuff. And there's so many animals here that can kill us. So, you know, <laughs> we need more of those. This landscape has the opportunity again to be beautiful, right? You got the cities, beautiful Sydney, beautiful Brisbane, Melbourne, all Adelaide, beautiful cities. And then just go slightly outside harsh harshest place in the world you know so and, and it does lend that opportunity for kind of dante's inferno descent into hell type of horror films i knew there was a reason i loved you guys you just said everything that made my heart sing in like <laughs> under a minute okay <laughs> <laughs> one thing i'd be remiss not to ask you guys because we kind of touched on a little bit is predestination for me i think that was the first time i ever saw sarah snook as well and like what a calling card performance that really launch someone i'd love to hear your thoughts about like calibrating that performance working with that actor and kind of putting them on the same equal footing as someone as beloved as ethan Hawke in that film well it was a it was a gamble i mean when we first saw sarah we saw her in a film called not suitable for children i don't know if you remember that 
movie, but Karen um, Ryan Quantin. Yeah, and and thought she was really good, and so she was kind of on our radar, and we got to audition her and a number of other people, and she was just absolutely the standout. And Michael and I just kept saying, you know, if if we were to really push it, we'd get her to play two parts and two genders. It's a gamble. It's a real gamble. But I think she's got the the talent to do it. And we also spoke to Ethan and said, look, this is what we're going to do. And he was completely supportive. And he was actually kind of mesmerized too. And he was like, this girl's, this girl's going to do it. She's going to make this work. And, and so we all saw it in the, in the rushes. And we're like, I think this is going to work. And, you know, you're terrified. And you, you certainly don't tell the actress, hey, listen, this is all riding on your shoulders. You don't want to tell her that with her first sort of big movie with a, with a big Hollywood star. But she totally rose to the occasion. And we just talked a lot about the character, and the, the, the journey of the character and how, how complicated it was, because it's a, it's a big puzzle to unwrap. And she was deep into it and really wanted it to be, you know, as good as it could be. And she, at the end of almost every day, she was completely exhausted because there's just pages and pages of dialogue and heavy stuff to do. And she just gave it everything. And we, we all kind of knew at the end, it's like, this girl's, this girl's going to, she's going to be all right. She's, she's going she's gonna to find her place. She'll be fine. It is, it is our favorite film. It's the thing we're most proud of. And I hope that we get to make another film like that. We've definitely got some scripts like that in our, in our drawer at the moment that we, where we want to do it. It's just, it's so hard to finance. It's so hard to convince people to take risks like that at the moment. And I think with the ever-changing landscape at the moment, certainly with the strike that's going on at the moment and with the... Um, with the streamers sort of dominating the industry, the the doors have shut a little bit on this type of low budget genre stuff. And I'm not saying that they're closed permanently. It's just, I think everybody's kind of recalibrating at the moment. And so we will see what happens over the next few years and the return of some, some really interesting stuff. It's gonna be a fascinating time to see what happens to cinema and then to streamers in the next five years. Well, I certainly do love those dudes. All right, we're back with Alex Heller Nicholas. Let's get into it. I want to know where she thought those first inklings of a new wave of Australian nightmares began. I mean, Wolf Creek is really a significant moment in Australian film history and Australian cultural history, I think, more broadly, because it just, what if Crocodile Dundee was a nightmare? You know, what if we take this kind of parody of Australian masculinity, this champion parody of Australian masculinity, what if we take that to its logical extreme? And it, it, it identifies and articulates a kind of violence that has been really repressed and denied and really runs with that in, in an extremely excessive way. Yeah, I think those films, in a way, I think they're really underrated. I think as well, they kind of like signal what is to become the Australian horror new wave. Mm-hmm of like the 21st century. It's like this little collection of films of stuff like Wolf Creek and The Loved Ones as well, which I think are kind of like playing on like this idea of what I've kind of called like Australian psycho, like these Australian psychopaths. Like so much of Australian cinema is like obsessed with usually male psychos. And I think that there's like this little crop of films that start kind of pushing through to be like, what is this next new wave? Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of topic in Australian art that plagues my thoughts completely. Our culture seems to be obsessed with celebrating or dissecting or trying to understand these really dangerous men. People that can hurt you. People that can harm you. People that can kill you. People that, heck, can even just really disturb you. We're fascinated by it. There's one film in particular that I think puts this trope on its head. It's the movie The Loved Ones. Here, it's not a dangerous man. We have a gender flip, a role reversal. We all know what it's like to be scared and um, and there's a great comfort in being in a cinema with people and it's, it, it's such a communal experience where you're scared but you're not in danger. And I, I don't know, I mean, I, I think a lot of successful filmmaking is about relatability and and from the youngest age you know I, i'm sure everyone can remember the first time you're kind of entrusted to stay in the house on your own or, mm. or, or or you're asleep at night and you can hear every creak in the house which just ties into you know like any type of paranormal film and so i, I think it's just kind of ingrained in us that's filmmaker sean Byrne, the writer and director of the loved ones 
If you haven't seen it, my gosh, you are in for a nasty little treat. The Loved Ones is a great film. It mixes slasher horror splatter movies with those kind of coming of age films, those prom classics from the twisted mind of John Hughes. You come to the prom? Yeah, I'm going with Holly. Will you go to the dance with me? Sorry, Lola. I'm done with Holly. Lola. What are you looking at? In Australia, in Australian cinema, or in Australian culture generally, we have like this history of kind of like fascination and celebration of like male psychopaths and dangerous men. And in The Loved Ones, it feels like you're particularly interested in like the inverse of this idea by having the character of Lola be the main antagonist and being like the inverse of these things that we look at and obsess about in Australian cinema. Is that something that you really were interested in subverting? Um, perhaps unconsciously so. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I was aware that there hadn't been a lot of you know great kind of female antagonists. Um, but I, I think even more so, I, I was thinking there hadn't been kind of a, you know, a nightmarish kind of tag team yeah. <laughs> of like, um, like you know, just fa- father and daughter, which I, I thought was really interesting because it informed. It was it was fun because you had a double threat, but also really informed character where where the father, who's in a way kind of like, you know, a d- deeply repressed serial killer in mm-hmm. in waiting, had kind of like educated his daughter to do things that maybe he had never got the chance to do, but also mixing that with this intense kind of love for his child in a kind of relatable way where he would do kind of anything for her. But it was just sort of so fucked up. And it, it, it seemed like, um, yeah, it just it just seemed like a way that we could learn backstory through character as well as having this kind of... Um, you know, like almost Fred and Rosemary West kind yeah. of like intimacy. So I, I was excited about that because, again, you know, I was dealing so sort of low low budget model and just trying to find ways to kind of cut through and to stand out. And and also, you know, the the hero is kind of outnumbered as as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it, it definitely was. It definitely was in the back of my mind that it was it was about time to. To have, um, hopefully, a, you know, potentially iconic kind of female villain, and Misery was a. I, I loved Misery. I mean, it's just the, the the script is like clockwork, and it's so much fun. I mean, I remember um, I'd given Robin McLeavy, who plays Lola, just reams of research on Dharma and 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 Ed Gain and a lot a lot of the stuff that I'd kind of lent into. But I, I think what was almost most informative to her was watching Kathy Bates in Misery and and understanding the kind of the the joy that can come with obsession and the kind of like kind of the party nature of just like <laughs> having having your prey kind of captive and and understanding that line between kind of a grounded character and the fun of a genre film you know like just the audience have got to kind of enjoy it and I think when she when she watched that film it really clicked because you can see even though Kathy Bates is terrifying as an audience member it just it feels like it feels like a good time you know (laughs) totally I mean I think it's the way you access it and the way you're talking about it, you really do understand like why you are able or how you're able to make one of the, in my opinion, very, very best horror films in Australian cinema because it's just so much about the balance and the subverting of those ideas that we become familiar with in horror and how to build tension in new ways. And I think so much of it comes to that character and I'd love to hear about, I mean, what goes into building one of the great needle drops in all of cinema with the Casey Chambers track? Like, how do you come up with that? Because it almost feels like it's score, it's made for her, that song, when you find it in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like a lot of, you know, film stories, I think it was, um, I think it was a bit of a happy accident. I originally was 
after Sydney Lauper's True Colours because I felt like it just it tied into the the pink dress mm-hmm. so well and and also um, you know like the the way that kind of Lola saw herself was like these True Colours underneath of like why why aren't I kind of as lovable why am I the wallflower and these my True Colours should come shining through but mm. they they never are and 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 of, and of course. Um, you know, true colours cost a ridiculous amount of money. Um, so, so, so then I looked at Kay, Casey actually did a cover of yeah. true colours. And then and then even, you know, even with her recording it, it still costs a ridiculous amount of money. Uh-huh. And then I then I thought of um, not pretty enough. And I was worried to begin with that it was, you know, is it going to be kind of too on the on the nose? Because it almost is like a, lyrically, it's a complete embodiment of the the character. But then, you know, it's like, no, no, this is this is kind of perfect. And I think it also matched, you know, Lola as a character because she's so kind of isolated and she wouldn't be, you know, she's not, she's not going to be scouring the indie record shop. Mm. She's going to be listening to whatever is on the top 40. And that was a number one hit for kind of a month. And I I, I liked subverting the fact that Brent, you know, he was into his kind of death metal Mm. and he was, he was almost into the devil's music and, and, and the, and the villain is into the, into the kind of, you know, sweet kind of top of the, top of the pops. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think Australia is such a great place to tell horror stories? I mean, it's that kind of old chestnut about the, the isolation and that feeling that you can just kind of disappear. But I think I was more interested in, um, you know, Wolf Creek. The the isolation is is such a character in the piece, and it's it's very overt. Mm. You know, like you you can't miss the isolation, um, and you feel like just like an, an ant surrounded by desert. Mm. But I, I was kind of interested in the fact that Australia, also in in sort of small country towns, and and even in um, you know like Tasmania, where I grew up, you can you can be kind of twenty minutes from the city and. And you're kind of still in the middle of nowhere, and, and I think that's that's kind of really fascinating and terrifying. And the loved ones were shot in Kyneton, and and the house that we found was ten minutes away from, you know, the hub of this kind of small town where you've got kind of all the amenities that you need, but you can also kind of kind of disappear. And that's why we deliberately didn't choose a kind of farmhouse that looked like Satan lived there, which is one of my pet peeves where it's always mm-hmm. like the most kind of dilapidated hell house in the world. And it's like, mm, where's where's the bad shit going down? Like, you know, like, of course, you're going to go to that house. So yeah. I just wanted something, something that looked pretty normal. And yeah, and, I, and you know, I think at the time I was remembering the um, Joseph Fritzl story um you know in, in in austria where he's basically in the middle of town and you know his his daughter that he was had an ancestral kind of relationship with and they fathered like four of his children i think and and they were like underground in a bunker for like 17 years or something completely crazy and, and never seen the sun and that was like in the middle of the city which is just insane so mm. i think that was kind of my my way in is like these things can re- if these things can realistically happen in bigger cities you know like australia and country towns you've got you've got isolation within kind of spitting distance of of the town we're not a particularly populated kind of country uh, yeah. which, um, you know as the population is kind of rising there's just there's just a lot of space and you know space is kind of dangerous <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to ask you about like the character of brent mitchell the xavier samuel character i feel like at that time in cinema like xavier samuel was like the guy for everything at that time how did you go about casting him was it something that helped you get the film made no because he hadn't he hadn't done twilight at that stage he'd he'd, he'd made one other film called September I yeah. was like Peter Carstairs's coming of age film and I saw that and um and I, I thought Xavier was was great in it and I, I was looking for somebody that had a really strong internal quality yeah um because you know as, as you know um you know Brent is is tied to a chair for 60 percent of the <laughs> of the film if if not more and has his vocal cords uh destroyed by bleach so his voice is stripped away so I needed someone that could communicate in in a really kind of persuasive way just through just through kind of body language and his his eyes and um in September it was a a really restrained performance Mm. it was still powerful so I I was really hoping when he came into the audition that he was going to be he was going to be good and I, I think that you know I think that's one of the things about casting is 
and it can be really unfair on actors as well because you can get people can come in and do an incredible job but i had my eye on him right as soon as i saw mm. that film it was that combination of his internal qualities and his look he just had such a great look and i didn't want you know it's it, it's kind of a it's kind of a glossy kind of teen film in a way as well as a horror film and mm. i've been really um influenced by kind of linklater's dazed and confused and and kind of john hughes far more than someone like Larry Clark. So there was kind of an aspirational casting element where I knew I could cast actors in their kind of 20s uh, one of the, you know, he looked he looked a bit like a young Keanu Reeves or something mm. and, and, and they're kind of archetypes. And I was like, this guy, he's the kind of guy that if you're in the cinema and you're watching, you go, I almost wish I looked like that. So he already had the look and then I was just like praying when he came in that, you know, he, he could nail the audition, which he which he did. But there's also like a part of you that's a, a bit sad because, I mean, Xavier was great in the auditions. So I was like, you know, phew. But then other people came in that were also fantastic and it was like, oh, so, you know, like you just like poured your heart out. And yeah. <laughs> so look comes into it a lot as well. I think it is that aspirational quality that you speak of that like really makes you connect to that character so powerfully. I talked about Robin McLeavy, I think, a bit earlier and um, just uh, such a debt of gratitude to, <laughs> to her because that was the one character that on, on the page, you know, like I'd, I'd kind of written it as this kind of like teenager that hadn't really grown up, but I'm not a teenage girl. And so it was the one, I was just terrified of it. And um, as soon as she came into the audition, you know, it was like, that's that's the girl. I mean, at, at a certain point, it was like, do we kind of cast younger and go for 17-year-olds? And then mm. she just came in and um, and it was literally the cry scene where it's like, <laughs> you know, that thing with kids wow. at school, it's like, you know, if, you know, if someone's cried, you want to get close up to their eyes and see, uh, are, they, are, they, are they crying? And, you know, she's screaming in Brent's face, cry, cry, cry. And it's like she was so loud and, and so fearsome. It was like, that is the girl. So it was like everyone else we kind of cast around that is going to kind of be, be in their twenties as well. But um, so that that to me was like incredibly kind of fulfilling, and that was my biggest relief throughout because that character, which is a part of kind of the gestation of the whole film, was my niece at the time was like five years old and completely obsessed with the color pink and princesses and that kind of out dated Disney notion of like someday my kind of prince will come and yeah I just thought that was I thought that would be really interesting as a character to take like basically a five-year-old kind of mentality that is kind of obsessed with childhood fantasy and transporting that into like the body and mind of a teenager with kind of like you know raging hormones and extreme loneliness and kind of furious rage and a total fucked up kind of socialization i thought that that mix could be really kind of volcanic uh, but i had no idea like all the other characters it's like i really know how I, I know how to direct this i've got like enough of a touchstone in my own life or whatever not that i would be like daddy but but, I, <laughs> I, but with that one it was like i needed someone that could come in and inhabit that skin and really kind of take the reins for herself and she did and she did that and and I, and, and to me it's like um i mean and this is all robin when i when i first you know when we got whenever we're in trouble in the edit it was just like go to robin when the the cut first started to to really sing it was like i mean i was just blown away by her performance and i, I don't think she in the years that have passed, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I think horror fans really revere that character. But for me, that was like the splashiest, kind of most colourful character to kind of like grace our screen since it was like there was like Chopper and John Jarrett and, and Wolf Creek. And that, to me, it was like she blew my hair back <laughs> as just an audience member in a really kind of unforgettable way and walked this incredible tightrope between, you know, like it, it was grounded, it was lonely, it was sexy, it was feral, genuinely schizoid. It was just such a high wire performance. So, yeah, so, I, you know, like I'm, I just want to see Robin in every second film that's made. <laughs> hey, me too. I might even go as far as every film that's made because, like you said, yeah, it's just... Yeah, that was... 
Oh, it's just one of the great performances and just like a real character that you can just like sink your teeth into. And she does such a magnificent job with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I think in a, in, in a just world. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to, yeah, next time, like, well, I don't know, she's such a great villain. It would be, I, yeah, I, I mean, ever since working with her, I've been trying to, you know, trying to find ways to work with her again. So um, hopefully. I hope you do. Not too distant future. <laughs> I hope you do. I think you guys are a real match. I can't wait to see what you do next. That was Sean Byrne on his teen classic, The Loved Ones. Another element that starts emerging in this cinematic movement is playing with the form of narrative itself. In the worldwide scape of horror at that time, we're starting to see a huge interest forming in the ideas of found footage, like paranormal activity. These faux documentaries that instill a very real sense of fear. And that wave starts hitting us here in Australia, with Lake Mungo and the tunnel. Ten days after Ellie's funeral, stuff started happening around the house. Sounds seemed to come from Ellie's old room. They didn't really relent. So I thought, well, I'll just set up a camera to, you know, I see anything. I looked back and there was footage of a figure moving across the hallway. The image was quite unsettling because it certainly... I could talk about Lake Mungo till I die. I just think it's a perfect film. I, I just don't think there's one beat out of place. I think it's really one of the great Australian horror films. Something that I find really fascinating is when I most of my work is overseas and when I travel to you know to film festivals or, or events overseas that are horror centered, people don't want to talk about Picnic at Hanging Rock. They don't want to talk about they don't want to talk about Wolf Creek. Every single time. It's like, oh my God, you're from Australia, let's talk about Lake Mungo. And that film is so much better known overseas than it is here. So much, so much more, you know, cult favourite overseas. And I think Australian, um, sorry, I'm going to go on a little tangent on <laughs> Lake Mungo. Please go on that um, tangent. <laughs> Australian found footage horror, I think, is really important. You know, films like The Tunnel, films like Lake Mungo, because they're all about the truth. Found footage horror is always about this idea that technology can capture a truth. And there's a kind of hubris, I think, in found footage more generally. And it's like, well, no, it can't capture the truth. Things will always go askew. You know, you'll try to capture, you'll try to capture the truth, but the truth will always win out. You know, you are, you are not going to conquer it. And that, I think, taps very, very explicitly into the white Australian imagination. You know, this idea of, of you know, the, the past is something that, you know, has been sort of very contentiously positioned in terms of the history wars and the legacy of colonialism. And it's like, there's this truth there. Can we capture the truth? And Lake Mungo, I think even the very title of the film, you know, like only a very small segment of that film is actually shot at Lake Mungo, but the title of it kind of looms over. And, you know, it's this this very important sacred space for First Nations people, hugely important archeological site. And it's sort of Lake Mungo as a space and and as a kind of concept really haunts that film. Most of the film is set in, in, you know, in Ararat, but it's like, it's Lake Mungo, Lake Mungo. And it's almost it's sort of hidden in plain sight. And I think hidden in plain sight is almost like the drumbeat that, that runs through Australian horror across the board. You know, that there's something there that we know is there, but we can't quite get a handle on it or we can't quite come to terms with it. There's something slippery and, and we can never quite capture it. And that, of course, goes back to Picnic and Hanging Rock, right? And it's, it's such a random point of reference, but Picnic and Hanging Rock is actually a hugely important reference point for found footage horror film in general because if you look at the opening title card of the Blair Witch Project and have a look at the opening title card of Picnic at Hanging Rock it's a deliberate reference and both are about young people going missing in the woods or in the bush I don't think that we would have Blair Witch in a way if it wasn't for for Picnic at Hanging Rock or certainly Picnic at Hanging Rock very strongly influenced Blair Witch Project In that same space of faux documentary, direct horror, as Lake Mungo, is another film that I think is ripe for that rediscovery, The Tunnel. It was unleashed on audiences directly via BitTorrent in 2011. A very spooky way to find a movie like this. It's all about going into those tunnels underneath Sydney, entering via St. James Station and finding out you're not alone in there. As a Sydney sider myself, I've long fantasized about the freakiness that can be hidden in those tunnels I walk past almost every day. 
plan from the start was when we got to the tunnels was to get to the lake because that's where the story was. Okay, through here, through there. Yeah. Yep. It's a bit tight down there, Tubby. You reckon you're going to make it? Directly below one of Sydney's busiest train stations is the forgotten water resource that's causing all the controversy. I was starting to feel there was something not quite right. Bell out, Moss. Here I am speaking with Enzo Tedeschi, the film's co-writer, producer and editor. I'm really excited to talk to you about The Tunnel. It's a film that I really, I love. I adore this film. I it kind. generally freaks me out. <laughs> I'd love to kind of hear about the genesis of this film. How does the journey with this film begin? Oh, man. So, you know, early in my career, I started as an assistant editor at, uh, at Channel 9, haunting the late night hallways of the edit suites with, uh, with fellow editor Julian Harvey. And we just kind of we ended up becoming really good friends and talking about our ambitions to sort of, you know, like, we should make a movie one day, it'd be really cool, you know. And um, we kind of actually started talking seriously about, well, what if we actually did? What would that look like? What would it be? And I think we knew we had to work within the limitations that we had, right? So we knew it would be a particular kind of film. Mm. We knew horror was probably something that was cheap and effective and we could uh, – it wouldn't look like we were trying to cheat and hide the budget, you know what I mean? So these parameters kind of dictated the kind of film. And then we started looking for story ideas. And where it started actually was we, <laughs> we had this idea for a zombie movie that took place in an old abandoned gold rush town somewhere oh. in, in the middle of New South Wales mm -hmm. because, like, you know, the, the heavy metal poisoning in the water would, like, send everybody crazy and all of that sort of stuff. And then the more we got into it, the more interesting it became to try and find – I think it might have been Jules's idea to go, what if we tried to get that isolation that we're getting from a super remote location, but actually try and create that isolation in the middle of like the most densely populated city in the country? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because there's whole there's a whole thematic there that, you know, if you go looking for it, it's saying something. Mm -hmm. But uh, and so then we just, you know, took that whole jumping off point of the, the tunnels, the St. James tunnels and the lake's actually a place that's down there that I'd been. So I just went, oh, we got Brian. It just kind of started piecing together this mythology around, you know, some of the real world stuff. So I'd love to just hear more about that as a location. Like you were talking about like the thematic as well of like choosing as that. Could you go deeper into that? Well, I think when you think about the idea and it's probably even more pronounced now mm -hmm. over a decade later, like when you think about this concept of being surrounded by people and, you know, being within arm's reach of people, but still feeling completely and utterly alone. I think that probably says a lot about modern society and, you know, the world that we live in. So, and it makes for a great setup for a horror film, I think, because there's one thing to go, there is no help. It's too far away. No one's coming to save you. That's great. But I think it's far more interesting to go, but help's just there. A reason I really love this film, and I think it almost like informs my taste in horror as well, is I'm like that exact right age where, you know, as a genre film fan, as I'm getting into horror, horror is kind of leaving that era of... Uh, like the grisly kind of torture porn of like your sores and stuff mm. like that. And we're having like this genre cycle of found footage horror coming through. And that is like the subgenre of horror that I first really connect to as far as stuff that I'm getting found to footage. see. That, yeah, found yeah, footage right. and that freshness of that found footage cycle that kind of, I guess, really kicks into gear with paranormal activity that I think there's something about that reality aspect of it and speaking through reality of it. They really, uh, to put it lightly, freaks the fuck out of me and why I really love them. Yeah. And I think your film, The Tunnel, like lands at that exact right time for me yeah. where I'm working in a video store. I, that's how I first encountered this film was on DVD. But even by the time it gets to me on DVD, I feel like you guys really learned everything possible and powerful about the entire experience of the Blair Witch Project of being like a found footage film but then kind of creating a bit of a mystique around it with like the release. Yeah, right. Well, I think that, you know, in terms of the film itself, one of the things that we leaned really heavily into is so, uh, Jules and I were both editors mm -hmm. and, you know, we did a, a little bit of our own shooting, of very factual and doco stuff mm -hmm. as well. And so we had a really good feel for what that naturalistic stuff felt like. And we had a lot of that really accessible gear to be able to make it happen. So, 
in terms of the the craft of the storytelling, we found it really easy to call bullshit on something that didn't feel real, right? And in fact, when we when we brought Carlo on, our director, and we just kind of went, look, we've got you know, it was a challenge for him because we had a really strong vision for it. Mm. We just neither of us were comfortable uh, with the idea of working with actors at that point. And we're like, this is the script. That's the story we're not going to tell you it needs to be word for word. So you should dive heavily into improvisation because this needs to feel as real as you can make it feel. And they did that. I think there's maybe two lines in the film that are like verbatim as were scripted. Otherwise, everything is just these guys going, this is where the scene starts. This happens in the middle. That happens at the end. Go. And then the rest of it was Jules and I in the cut trying to find it. But in terms of the, you know, we did look really closely at what was happening, what the Blair Witch Project guys did, but also... At the time, BitTorrent was a massive, massive, massive thing. And there were a couple of platforms that were releasing really high quality cinematic or, or episodic content for free, legitimately, like going, but, but via torrent networks, right? We saw a way as aspiring filmmakers to get our names on a map pretty quickly. And I think that the release on BitTorrent was flirting enough with the idea and the concept of piracy, which was massive in the news at the time. Especially in Australia. Especially, like I think we were the highest per capita rate of yeah. illegal movie downloads at the time. So, you know, it was conscious. We knew we would we would be courting some controversy, but I don't think either of us expected it to explode the way it did. You know, I think as well for me, like as a film fan at that time, there's something so enticing in tying like the artifact of the film itself being like this found footage documentary style of film with a release through the internet that I think like when we think about like the great marketing film campaigns of history Blair Witch Project to me sits at the top of that ever Mm. and to me I think your film plays really nicely into it is getting the film through a pirating service or through BitTorrent Pirate Bay there's something about that where it feels like you're you're getting something that should not be seen. And to me, I think like that's the most enticing, like delightful like hand that you extend to your audience like that. Was that something that you were very You know, it's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Really? But you are, but you're absolutely bang on that that I can see how that works completely and utterly. Like I think our our brains were so full of just trying to make it work between the traditional and this crazy idea that we had that that probably never occurred to us. We were just going, where are the eyeballs? They're over there. It's a guarantee, you know, to the point where we partnered with, uh, God, was it BitTorrent? Or maybe it was the platform that released it. But basically for, I think it was like for a month, anyone who downloaded the BitTorrent client from the website had the tunnel torrent bundled with the download. So it would just automatically start downloading. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what you point out is interesting and makes complete and utter sense is because despite the fact that the film has an opening title sequence that clearly indicates a director and script writers and actors and there's an entire crew listed in closing credits, right? Blair Witch didn't have a lot of that stuff. A lot of these found footage films that pretend to be artifacts don't. We didn't even try. We, we never tried to hide the fact that this was a movie that was written and scripted and made and yet there's still a legion of people out there that still think it's real, which is fascinating to me. It's like uh, the only thing I can think of is they're so caught up in the story that they're just not paying attention, right? Like, is, is it real? It's real. Like, we, we just courted the reality jumping off point of the story just enough and didn't push it far enough that people would go, oh, well, clearly that's BS. So, yeah, that's no, interesting. I've n- never thought of it that way. That was part one of our two part journey into the Australian nightmare modern horror cinema. On the next episode of Sunburnt Screens, we continue our exploration into the Australian nightmare with part two, where that new wave of Australia's horror cinema crashes into us. And it's something entirely different. It's not just who are those films for, but who are those films by? And that's that's the dialogue, that's the conversation of, of cinema as a, as a broader art form which is really exciting because I think what we find in Australia at the moment is that we, we literally have new blood. Most of the big current horror films are made by people under 40, which is quite radical. And they're not made by cishet, straight, middle-class white dudes necessarily. You know, we have people from all sorts of different kind of cultural backgrounds. We have women, we have people of colour, you know, we have Indigenous filmmakers working in this horror space. And that opens up the conversation. Right? You know, who is horror for? Well, it's actually for everyone. 
even though in Australia it's very much, you know, a white dude history, that's really changing. And I think that it's also changing in the sense that we can look back and say, actually, maybe it wasn't a white dude. Maybe we can now see people like like Ann Turner and her 1989 film Celia. It's like, oh, that's actually a major part of Australian horror film history that we've completely ignored because it was made by a, a queer woman. Celia has been pretty hard to find for film lovers for quite some time, but it is now available for you to watch for free at brolly.com.au, the new streamer from the legends at Umbrella Entertainment, who are helping us make this podcast right now. So I encourage you to head on over, download the app, watch it wherever you can, and there's even a dedicated Australian horror curated selection called Australian Nightmare. It includes The Tunnel, Celia, and even another hard-to-find film, Lake Mungo. So check them out. Until next time, I'm Alexi Toliopoulos, and I'll see you at the movies. Listener.